We have a new person on This Week in the CLE starting today, Lisa Garvin, who has been a community member of the editorial board of Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer, is joining us. It is This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Laura Johnston, Layla Tassi, and welcome Lisa Garvin. Lisa is a Cleveland area native who left for a while, but has been back for four years and has been a very active member of our editorial board. It's been a pleasure to have conversations with her about all the big issues. So Lisa, welcome. Thank you. It's actually exciting to be back behind the mic again. I was a news reporter and anchor in Houston for 15 years, so this is kind of like getting back on the horse again. I'm glad to be back in Cleveland. I've had a wonderful time on the editorial board, and I look forward to having some stimulating conversations here. Uh, well, <laughs> we hope we'll have stimulating conversations. I think your presence will make sure that that happens now. All right, let's begin. How did the dreaded spotted lanternfly get into two neighborhoods in the middle of Cleveland? Laura Johnston, when we talked about the arrival of the spotted lanternfly last week in Cuyahoga County, I figured it was out in the park somewhere, but this is right in the middle of urban Cleveland, close to the lake. I'm thrown by how they got there. I I mean, I still don't know exactly how they got there. But yeah, we're talking between East 56th and East 55th Street and Euclid and Carnegie Avenues. And once they found it there, then they found another population between Woodland and Holton Avenues and East 71st and East 86th Streets, which that's a pretty big area. So these are these um, colorful winged insects. They are native to China, first detected in 2014, actually in Pennsylvania. So you wonder, I mean, that's not very far away that it took this long to get to Ohio. It was actually found in Mingo Junction, Ohio, south of Steubenville last year. But these are a big problem for grapevines, fruit trees, uh, oak, pine, poplar, and walnut trees. And they're, they're dangerous, they're invasive, and they could kill a lot of plants in their path. And also, I guess their bodies get really sticky afterwards. And so you could, if there's like a whole bunch of them, you could slip and fall. They do not sound like something you want in your yard or in your crops. Yeah, I just, I, it threw me when the, the locations came out because it seems like they just skipped all the forested areas or maybe we haven't found them. Or, I don't know, maybe they arrived on a load of firewood or something, but they're, they clearly are here. They're going to be a menace to people who grow plants anywhere in Cuyahoga County now. And th- what they recommend is if you see one, kill it immediately. Although somehow I don't think that will ever be right it's not like if there's a swarm of them you're not gonna be able to kill them all but apparently this is the september through november is the best time to catch one of these so i'm not exactly sure why but they're already harming local tourism economies in the northeast like events like weddings and wine tastings because they're so prevalent like people don't want to be there and then they're killing the the crops as well christmas trees and nurseries and uh, it sounds like there's a lot of consequences. And and because they're not indigenous to the ecosystem, we don't know what's going to happen next. It's very unpredictable. Yeah, and I guess there's no natural predator. I mean, they're very, very visible. Mm-hmm. They have red spotted wings and they're very dramatic looking. So you would think that if there were a predator, they could find them, but we don't seem to have it. Okay, scary stuff in Cleveland. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why were voting rights advocates sounding the alarm Friday, finally, about how Ohio's elected leaders have blown the constitutional deadline for showing us the maps for new legislative districts in the state? 
Lisa Garvin, I uh, we've been alone. It felt like for days saying, when are we going to see these? You violated the Constitution. Tomorrow will mark one full week beyond the deadline, one full week until the final deadline for seeing these maps. What are the voting rights advocates saying? Honestly, you know, Common Cause and the League of Women Voters have been very vocal after we passed that September 1st deadline. So I think there's a little bit of panic setting in because now the next deadline is September 15th. But from what I understand, this has been very hard to follow. I can't imagine the average person can actually follow this kind of, you know, very twisty process. So... I guess now that the September 1 deadline has been blown, the Republicans on the commission can work on their own map without Democrat support or input, but that map is only good for four years. The only map we've seen so far has been generated by the Democrats, immediately shot down by the Republicans on the commission, but the Republicans have not produced a map of their own, and they're apparently working behind the scenes. So I wonder if that's their end game is just to have a four-year map which will get them through through the uh through the next election so i i think the league of women voters and common cause and other voting rights advocates are saying whoa wait a minute we need to see some maps we need to have some public input like now i wonder whether if the republicans do what we think they're doing working away in a in a closed room to come up with a map if it's egregious if it really is offensive to those who want fair maps whether they're blowing the constitutional deadline becomes fodder for a legitimate lawsuit that they did not pass these maps in accordance with the requirements of the constitution so they are de facto illegal maps this is uncharted territory it's a brand new process but the governor the secretary of state the heads of the senate and the house and the state auditor are all in violation of the ohio constitution they swore to uphold and the clock continues to tick we're going to be a week in and I, I just don't I just, understand I, why we don't ha- we haven't seen any maps. The Democrats were able to produce a map as a baseline for discussion. Their map was 55 percent GOP districts, 45 percent Democrat districts, which follows the state voting patterns. But again, the GOP has no maps at all. They can make fun of the snake on the lake. They can make fun of the duck shaped district. But what do they have that's any better or different than that? Well, and you wonder, when will Mike DeWine be held accountable? He's the governor. He's the head guy. And he's ducking reporters. He doesn't have his briefings anymore. And so nobody's been able to get in his face and say, hey, you're in violation of the Constitution, man. When are you going to step up and do your sworn duty here? And every day that goes by, you're kind of struck. And finally, I think on Friday, you saw some of the advocates start to seriously worry so we'll have to see how we kick off this week see if we're going to get any view of what these maps will look like you're listening to this week in the cle what was the only school district in cuyahoga county not to send the state its plan for teaching children who get sent home because of coronavirus exposure Leila tassi when we started talking about this a week ago a whole bunch of districts had not submitted plans but the dominoes are falling kids are going home because they've been exposed to the coronavirus and pretty much everybody now has a plan that's right the only district to skip out on filing one of these plans for remote teaching was beechwood 
So all told, 35 districts filed the paperwork for blended learning. That's up from 14 districts the prior week. So quite a few have recognized at the last minute the peril that they were in if they didn't take this step by the Tuesday deadline. The blended learning model means that the school is primarily operating under an in-person framework, but they have the ability to toggle to remote learning in the event of a COVID outbreak, which we are already seeing across the region, across the state so far this school year, that, that schools are shutting down for a week or more to quarantine their students or that masses of students are leaving on quarantine. And this is especially important in districts where masks are optional because without that protective barrier, more kids will require quarantining after exposure to COVID in the classroom. 17, yeah, go ahead. uh, Although we are seeing districts cave and start requiring masks. Oh, yes. I mean, it seems like every day that goes by, they're like, holy moly, this is a big problem. We're changing our policy. We don't care what the screaming anti-maskers have to say. I know, because you see so many dozens at a time. There was a district uh, that we reported over the weekend that had something like 180 kids who had to be quarantined at once. So 17 districts in Cuyahoga County received permission from the Department of Education to run online schools, which is a much more permanent arrangement than blended learning. An online school is meant to extend beyond the pandemic, and the kids who are enrolled in, enrolled in these programs are spending most of their time learning remotely as opposed to in the classroom. So I'm imagining that this is like that online option that a lot of districts offered last year where you could kind of keep your kid home and, and they still have the benefit of being a part of, of school and getting all the curriculum. So to answer your original question, Chris, Beachwood. Beachwood is the district <laughs> can I that doesn't seem to think it needs a backup plan here. <laughs> can, I, can I jump in here? This is Laura Johnson. Laura Johnson. I just want to be clear that there's there's 35 schools and school districts. So some of the numbers from that 35 are some independent or parochial schools, because I think there's only 27-ish True. school districts in Cuyahoga County. And that is up... Um, obviously from last week, but yeah, both mine and Layla's districts were not on the original list. And there were so many parents are like, are we going to, are we going to put a plan? Like what happens if there's a problem? And so I had Laura Hancock, the reporter on this story, call Beachwood and just be like, what's what, why not? And their answer, I guess, was that they have a mask mandate. They all have to wear masks, but I still don't think that negates the possibility that we will have such a bad outbreak (laughs) that we are forced to go online. And if you think about it, I mean, that means those kids are going to be, they could be quarantined without any help. But, you know, we have talked in the past, maybe the state would relax and say, okay, emergency, get your plans in now. But it is reassuring to know there is a backup plan. I just don't know if this is only going to be like a school-wide thing, if they have to go remote, or if they'll be able to help kids if we have a whole lot of kids on quarantine because right. like they're out for two weeks, they're not getting education. My In my mind, I was thinking that is provided for under the blended learning, but I guess you're right. That's an unanswered question. So if we have a one-off case where someone, two weeks is a long time to be out of school, a long time. Right. So you have to have some kind of, of, you know, and I'm assuming that the blended learning covers I, that, but maybe, I, maybe you're right. Maybe it doesn't. I don't think that question is answered in this. This is just a plan for what happens if they need to. But because we haven't seen a huge shift yet, I, I, I don't think this is going to be just like a one-off because they'd have to devote teachers to it. And unless they got a class full of kids that are quarantined, I don't know that they're going to do it. But, but I it run I, similarly to how it did last year where, you know, there were teachers, I mean, the teachers pretty much had 
some kids who were in, in all of our classrooms, we had some kids who were online, some that were in person. And the assumption would be that all the kids are in person unless someone it has to be quarantined, which is a, an extraordinary measure if you have a masked classroom. So could that kid just kind of tune in through that online portal or is this completely different? I don't know if blended learning means something else now. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Well, but the problem you face is we're heading into the cooler, mm -hmm. drier season when viruses very quickly spread. The summer is the dampering of, of the virus, even though we saw huge increases across this summer. So I think we're still headed into a lot of kids getting the coronavirus. So these plans will be put into effect. It's nice to know, though, after, what, two weeks of classes, they all realized, oh, no, we have a problem on our hands. And they actually did what they were supposed to and came up with plans, except for Beachwood. <laughs> You're listening to This Week in the CLE what did reporter Eric Isaac find was the impact that Chris Ronane had in his 16 years leading University Circle Incorporated now that he has announced he will step down to run for Cuyahoga County Executive? Laura Johnson, I feel bad. We gave Eric basically three days to tell the end-all, be-all story of 16 years at University Circle. But lo and behold, he did it. Yeah, he did. And this is pretty incredible that when Chris Ronane kind of stepped in, there was a ton of vacant land in University Circle. Obviously, the museums were there. Case Western Reserve is there, University Hospitals. But it is kind of transformed into Cleveland's second downtown over two decades. More than 2,300 apartments and homes were built with more than 1,000 on the way. The area has seen $3 billion in development investment. Single-family homes have sold for a median of close to $300,000. There are 50,000 employees in the area. And if you go down there, there's a lot of, you know, it, it's a beautiful place to be in. We have some lovely pictures. Last week was gorgeous, so we went out and got some new ones. Ronane has been really integral to this success, although the community is still working to welcome people from adjoining majority Black neighborhoods like Glenville, Huff, and Fairfax, as well as East Cleveland. It's been an economic engine like we'd never seen, even during some tough times, because he took over. Uh, and then the recession hit, uh, that this thing has boomed, uh, and, and others launched it. There were, there were people previous to him that, that started this, but for 16 years, he very carefully guided this into an economic powerhouse. That whole area looks different. Anybody that's been here a long time, you go through there, it doesn't look anything like it did 15 years ago. Uh, and that's a credit to, to Chris. He's right about we needed to be it more. We needed it to become pedestrian friendly, and it has been. I mean, I don't know how often you get through there, but it's dramatic. The next step for his whoever follows in his shoes is they got to figure out a way to get investment in East Cleveland mm -hmm. on the border of University Circle. That's the next expansion and, zone. Well, and I think that's going to be the most difficult part. I mean, really, University Circle is an island. You know, it's got Huff to the west and Glenville to the south. I mean, so it's surrounded by majority black neighborhoods that have been riven by poverty. And yes, they've created walkways and everything to connect it. But I wonder what the next step is to connect connect those communities to University Circle. That's, I think, the big yeah, challenge. We, yeah, Lisa Garvin, you're right. That and, and Chris actually addressed that in the story that that they've built the connections. But what comes next is, do you bring economic development to those neighborhoods? I, I would think, though, that the desire 
to be in that neighborhood would just cause some more investment in those environs. The place with the most vacant land is East Cleveland, but nobody wants to do business there because the government is so dysfunctional that nobody really trusts it. And when there was talk of merging East Cleveland and the Cleveland, I think there was some excitement about what might happen there. But you're right. The The next Chris is the one that will have to, to address those neighborhoods. The, one of the things that helped the invigoration of and could and continue helping these communities kind of meld is the Euclid Avenue bus route, right? Like that goes all the way from downtown through uh, Cleveland State to University Circle and to East Cleveland beyond. That's been a huge driver of the development. And hopefully it can be a solution in the future. But I just remember like going to the Children's Museum when my kids were little, you know, like 2012 or something. And I, I think it was like an old restaurant that was turned into a museum. And now it's like this massive skyscraper of apartments. And I, I think that kind of tells the story right there. They they built on things you didn't even know they could build on. And it, it's just booming. Next step, close Chester, turn it into a bike and pedestrian trail from downtown to, to University Circle and see how you, it You heard You're it here first. To this week in the CE League. First Energy was in the news over the weekend for something unrelated to the House Bill 6 bribery scandal, but with a huge impact on a lot of people. Lisa Garvin, this wouldn't drop my jaw. What happened? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, it's called stuffing. Apparently, hackers were hitting the site. What stuffing is, is they take login and username information from a website and then try to use that same information to log into other sites. This affected the information of 6 million customers. I got my email on Saturday telling me to reset my password, and I must admit that I used that same password for another utility. So I think this is a lesson that you just don't reuse passwords. Uh, First Energy, I think they were kind of on the ball. They let us know. We don't know when it happened, but it seemed like they were pretty on the ball in letting us know. They said there was no evidence of information being misused and no sensitive information was exposed. But I think this is kind of a lesson for all of us who like to reuse passwords. There are people out there using that against you. Well, we're going to do a follow today because I don't remember any other business doing what they did. Usually when you get the warning, I got the same email you did. That's why we did the story. Because if it happens to Chris Quinn, we have to do a story about it. <laughs> I, and, and I've never you got admit that. a note. Well, somebody else could have sent it in. My husband handles all the utilities. I did not get the email. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, normally you get a note saying, hey, we had a data breach. We suggest you change your password. First Energy took the step of blocking access to all accounts for all of its customers and said the only way you get back in is to reset your password. And I wonder if this is the future of breaches that that from now on, you'll see more and more companies saying, oh, we've had hacking attempts, some were successful, we're shutting everybody down because you're right, Lisa, everybody reuses passwords. How many different sites, think about it, how many different sites do you log into in a month? 50? I mean, who's going to remember 50 passwords? And so I think a lot of us use the same ones over and over again. And, uh, you know, no? like I said, anybody, <laughs> you don't know, you? No, nope. I I'm do. Sorry. No, no. I, I was going to say, I actually had one password that I've probably used on six different sites and it's changed over the years, but yeah, no, I'm a password reuser. And honestly, right. 
if, if first energy had not locked me out, I probably would not have changed my password. <laughs> right, and you you change it like just one letter, right? Or the character that the the weird character that you put in between things. That yeah, I think we're all creatures of habit, and you can only remember so many things in your brain. So this is interesting. Well, well here's my diabolical question: What if First Energy wanted people to be aware they had online access to accounts? Because I can't remember the last time I logged in to First Energy, but I logged in when I got the email. Is this a diabolical plan to get more people using their online accounts so Ooh. that they will get their bills by electronic form instead of by <laughs> mail and save First Energy a boatload of money? Not that I would ever impugn the motives of First Energy because it is such a sterling member of our community. I think you've got Anybody? HB6 Anybody? on the brain there. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Gary Truen was the only Secret Service agent from Cleveland deployed to work the investigation at Ground Zero following 9-11. What did he remember when he talked to reporter, reporter Brenda Kane for a 20th anniversary story published over the weekend. Laura Johnson, this is but one of a whole lot of stories we have going up. We had a lot of memories from this weekend that we'll be talking about probably later in the week. But what did Mr. Truhan have to yeah, say? This was a really interesting conversation that Brenda had. So on September 11th, uh, Gary Truhan was supposed to begin arrangements for George W. Bush coming to Northeast Ohio the following week. Obviously, that never happened. And instead, he remembers talking to the folks at Hopkins when the second plane hit the towers, the Twin Towers in New York City. And so he was dispatched to New York. He arrived on October 22nd to join agents all over the country. And he remembers watching smoke rising from the site as his plane landed in Newark, obviously across the Hudson River. And it, he said it was surreal. It was no way to describe the devastation. You couldn't even recognize you where you were on the site. Obviously, there's a huge swath of New York. It's not just two buildings. And they had to like overlay a map so that people could figure out where they were. And they were working at Ground Zero and the Fresh Kills landfill on Staten Island to process this debris for human remains and evidence. 12-hour shifts for more than a month. Yeah, I, I got some nice notes from readers about the story. They were uh, they were glad to read it. Uh, I, we I, have a bunch of other things. That, oh, go ahead, Lisa Garvin. No, I was just going to say that uh, I, I found his observation about George W. Bush very interesting. Um, you know, as you know, he was reading a book, I believe it was called My Pet Goat, to some school children when he got the word of the first plane and then the second plane. And just the look that he saw in George W.'s face, you know, just kind of brought it all home to him. And I remember that being used as a political football back then. A lot of people said, oh, you know, he didn't, you know, react accordingly or, you know, but if you were paying attention, you could really see the shock on his face when he got the word. So I thought that was an interesting observation. Another one, too, is that he realized that the debris was coming down like rain. I mean, he could cut mm -hmm. a path through it with his arm, he said, you know, and realized, oh, I guess I better put a mask on now. I don't think people realize that it was so bad there. Right. Or that smoke was still going up, you know, a month and a half later. So. He he was one to Gary Turin was one of the folks that sent us in observations, their thoughts on on September 11th. And I said, well, OK, this this guy's really interesting. Let's do an entire story on him. And I'm really glad we got his perspective. Yeah, it was it was a really good piece. Check it out on Cleveland.com. You're listening to this week in the CLE. 
All right, that'll do it for Lisa's first episode. I went easy on you, Lisa. I only gave you two questions. We'll load you up later in the week. Tomorrow, we're going to have actually a, a guest with us. Uh, Ted Dianen will be joining us to talk about an editorial that the Plain Dealer in Cleveland.com published over the weekend about the moment that Clevelanders have to truly change their destiny with this election. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Layla. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs>